We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal i know not what course others may take but as for me give me liberty or give me death the world will little note or long remember what we say here but it can never forget what they did here not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. I can hear you, the rest of the world hears you, and the people... This is America First with Sebastian Gorka. This is America First, and we are delighted to welcome our very special guest host, former Congressman Doug Collins. All right, everybody, it's Manic Monday. It's time for those of you out there who still have a candidate in the uh, Republican primary, namely Donald Trump. It is time to look at it and say, yes, we're back where we need to be for those who are also still holding out hope that Nikki Haley can do something in New Hampshire. Mm, well, good luck with that. Um, we'll see how that works out here tomorrow in New Hampshire. we got a big show. Seb is out at the SHOT Show, so I am here in the house representing Glock, uh, my, one of my favorite uh Gunmakers, who happens to be here in Georgia as well. But we're going to have a great show today. We've got John Solomon. we got Sarah Carter, Ashley Hayek from AFPI. we got Guy Reschenthaler. And we have Fred Flights as well. But first off, as we get started out of the block, I mean, sometimes you just – I don't understand this. We have to pace ourselves. But today, this is just like the NASCAR season. Daytona 500, one of the best, is starting us out. John Solomon, how are you doing, my friend? I am well, Congressman. Good to be with you. Good to be with you, too. I got this, and we're, we're turning the tables here. I'm going to have, have some questions. I love being on your show as yeah. well. Um, and just, let's just start off a little bit because you have been doing a lot of research. We've got the, the Hunter Biden stuff. We've got the Department of Justice stuff. If you're Jack Smith right now, John, I'm going to take it just a second. If you're Jack Smith, where do you feel like you are, especially we see some of these tumbling blocks? We see now the process slowing back down as it should be slowing back down. And even having the judge say, hey, quit giving motions here. In fact, I don't even want you to do it anymore. Where do you think Jack Smith's head is right now? Well, he's in a holding pattern and frustrated, right? You can see that in his court filings. Uh, you can see that the judge has slowed him down. But if I'm Jack Smith, I'm also worried about something going on down in Georgia. Uh, today, the um, divorce proceedings from the special yep. prosecutor hired by Fonnie Willis, uh, where there is allegedly evidence of an affair, uh, they've been unsealed. That's the first thing that's problematic. But the second thing is uh, uh, the lieutenant governor, Bert Jones, just said a little bit ago that the Senate has agreed to open a full inquiry into uh, the Fonnie Willis prosecution of Donald Trump and these questions. And the affair is one thing, right? There's the, mis yep. the allegation of misconduct or expert, but there's something else that's far more important, I think, at the end of the day, to the origins of all of the Trump cases. There is a record of a meeting, at least a billing for it, either there was false billing or it's true, uh, where the special prosecution team working for Fonnie Willis is listed as meeting in Augusta, Georgia, with the uh, Biden White House. Now, why would the Biden White House be involved at all in a cr state criminal prosecution against the president of the United States, former president of the United States? That's the first thing, and that's where the Georgia Senate is going to go. Now, they'll look at the other issues, the salacious issues, but finding out for the American public 
why the Biden White House had anything to do with the criminal prosecution in Georgia is very important. And it's especially important because last year, as you know, I think you even came on the show, I did this, the day I did this, we discovered a record uh, in which the Biden White House told the NARA, the National Archives, to sick the FBI on Donald Trump in the classified case, the classified records case. So you have two instances now where a White House that should not be involved in criminal prosecutions and investigation appear to be at the instigation points of investigations and prosecutions of Donald Trump. That's where this is going to become important. And if I'm Jack Smith, you know you're going to get tarred with this, even if you're not the guy in the middle of those meetings. Well, I mean, John, you have the absolute debacle in, in New York City with Alvin Bragg and Letitia James. I mean, you yeah. have those two cases, two separate cases, just completely, you know, stupid in many ways. And I'll, just, I'll use the legal term <laughs> stupid there. Um, my, my law school would be so <laughs> proud. Um, but you, then you've got this. You're exactly right. I mean, because everything that goes on here, Donald Trump has, has said all along, look, you're out there out to get me. And this is Jack Smith in the same pool with these other cases. So it looks like that's you know actually happening. Two things that, and I'm glad you pointed this out. One of those sealed uh, divorce that's going to be interesting uh, going forward. But this yeah. inner, this this contact with the Biden administration is so important because look, can you imagine if it was found out that the Trump administration had met with investigators? And the the whole you know script was flipped. It'd be front page news everywhere. Oh my they gosh! Was, Without a doubt, it would be bad. How though that we get this? Because one was in Washington, one was in Athens, Georgia. They were not going to a Georgia football game. They were. This was. They had to be discussing this. Where do you see this taking it from a more public perception model? And will Jack Smith have to back off a little bit because of this perception? Well, listen, there is a question that one has to wonder was, did did Jack Smith ever have any contacts with the White House uh, prior to his appointment or during the process of his early investigation that led to these uh, multiple indictments that he's brought? We know for sure that the White House had contact with NARA, using NARA as a cutout to Mm -hmm. send uh, the criminal referral and the documents to the FBI, which is how you start an investigation. Uh, Why they're down in Georgia, and by the way, did anyone in Georgia have contact with Jack Smith after they had contact with the White House? Did they do another backdoor where they funnel the evidence to Fani and Fani sends it to the Justice Department? Why do we think the White House has evidence on January 6th? We know it because the January 6th committee sent a whole bunch of documents, according to Congressman Barry Loudermilk, who a great Georgian on this uh, sh- uh, on my show broke this a couple months ago. He said, hey, the White House has sent some of the transcripts. And when we got them back, they redacted our own work product. So the White House was gathering January 6th evidence, and now it has at least two alleged contacts with the prosecutor who brings one of the January 6th cases. This is serious stuff. And you're right. Not only if it was Trump, in any other era of American journalism except the current one, this would have been front page breaking news. If this was in the 90s with the Clintons or the 2000s with the Bushes, if something similar had happened, journalists would realize how important this is. Here, as we see over and over again, the mainstream media is part of the protection racket of Joe Biden, and they're not covering this with the same certitude or aggression that the facts merit. Yeah, John, always starting out with you is, is just like opening a fire hose I mean, because there's so many things we can talk about here. And I want to bring in one that you brought up and mentioned that is just as a member, a former member of Congress who dealt at its you know, committee level, highest levels and, and dealing with you know the intelligence reports, dealing with Department of Justice and, and judiciary. Um, I, I still do not understand how Benny Thompson, Liz Cheney, the rest of the J6 committee got away with destroying documents taking documents and, and, and making them unavailable, sending them to other branches or people outside the federal government, and nobody seems to care. Benny Thompson just, you ask about it, well, yeah, well, whatever. And you're seeing what Barry talked about. They're getting redacted information from congressional yeah. sources. Again, is it just simply a matter of the protection racket, or is what is it that's going to finally push this over the edge? The Democrats could care less about the rules or actually investigating. They're just covering up. Well, just a few minutes ago, uh, or a couple hours ago, actually, on Just the News, we broke this story, which is that uh, Congressman Barry Loudermick, chairman of the Oversight Subcommittee of House Administration, uh, says that there were 117 uh, 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 documents that were deleted from Congress uh, uh, two days before Republicans took over. These are all January 6th depositions and other documents. Someone went in, deleted them, 
and then also password protected them before they deleted them so that if someone recovered them, you still wouldn't be able to get past the password. If the January 6th committee's uh, work was righteous, like it says it was, why would it be deleting things like Richard Nixon's gap in the tape? Why would it be password protecting something so that other members of Congress couldn't see its work? The January 6th committee has its own really significant issues. And then when you consider that that troubled committee had contact with the White House, and then the White House had contact with that now troubled prosecutor in Georgia, you're starting to see a pattern that is very disturbing. It really does look like an enemies list effort to gather all the Democrats who have some, a beef with Donald Trump, get them to work together to try to bring some form of prosecution that would ruin his 2024 election chances. That's the big fear that you know people who've been investigating this are beginning to see the outlines of in the evidence they've now gathered. Yeah, real quickly, John, one of the things is there's just there's so little you can do to an actual sitting member of Congress, especially inside the Congress itself. But there is one thing yeah. that can be done. Why do you think it's why do you think it cannot be happening? Got to go real quick here. Why has there not been Benny Thompson referred to Ethics Committee? Any of the members who are still there could be referred to Ethics Committee for destroying those documents. Do you think that'll happen? Look, I get it why they don't maybe want to, but at some point we may have to do that. Yeah, I think that's a high possibility. Going to be new developments later this week on some of the Democrats in Congress around January 6th. Going to blow a lot of people's lids off. I think you'll see a referral at some point. I got it. John Solomon, the best there is. Go make it out. We'll be right back on Seb Gorkas. America first. Threats to our financial freedom and stability are growing. China, Russia, India, Brazil, and Saudi Arabia are conducting international trade in local currencies, not the U.S. dollar. Rising interest rates and bad loans are exposing the banking system and causing failures. The Biden administration sends hundreds of billions abroad while depleting our strategic oil reserves and ignoring crumbling infrastructure. However, the biggest financial threat may be coming from within. Central bank digital currency is real. Patents have been filed and the big banks have released plans for implementation. The vets at Midas Gold Group see tyrannical implications. The end of cash? The end of financial privacy? Big government able to see your every purchase? Could there be ties to a social credit system? You can own private currency. Gold and silver. Get free silver just for asking Midas Gold Group how you can use your retirement to own physical gold. Call Midas Gold Group today at 855-322-GOLD. That's 855-322-4653. MidasGoldGroup.com. You're listening to America First with special guest host, former Congressman Doug Collins. All right, we're back after that with John Solomon. Glad to have you all back with us today here, America First. Doug Collins filling in for Seb Gorka, who is out at the SHOT Show. If you're out there and you happen to see him, please go up and say hello and tell him that we're all fine here back at the shop taking down. Now, uh, as we move to New Hampshire, as I said before, uh, it's coming to an end very quickly. I I called it last week. Somebody asked me about the horse race coming out of Iowa. I said, well, there's only one thing about the Iowa horse race. The horse died in Iowa because this is pretty much over. Uh, As we're looking at and Sarah Carter, uh, you see her all over the world. Sarah is always a great friend of the show, but also uh, a great friend of ours. And Sarah, it's always good to see you, talk to you. Uh, you're in New Hampshire. Tell us what the field looks like. So great to be with you, too, Doug. I'm here in New Hampshire. I'm actually sitting at a diner, the Red Arrow Diner. And um, I love it because just like I did in Iowa, it's great to be just down home talking to regular folks. And learning what it is that's most important to the American public, especially with the primary. So I'm happy to be here, excited to be here, um, and realizing even as far away as New Hampshire does, uh, immigration is the, one of the top concerns uh, that uh, the citizens have. And, and that's something, you know, that I've been looking into now for more than 20 years. Exactly. Sarah, before we get into immigration a little bit further, I want to, because I think it'll be one of the defining moments of this election cycle. I think I just, they have so bungled this issue that I believe it will. But let's go. A lot of things happened in the last 24 hours. You're on the ground in New Hampshire. Uh, Nikki Haley had a very uphill run uh, to start with, even in New Hampshire. And to appeal to, quote, liberal and independent moderate voters is not the way you win a national Republican primary. So it's an outlier to start with. But DeSantis, Ron DeSantis has dropped out now. Do you sense a change? in talking to people that now there's just more of the more of a, a realization that Haley uh, is is just in it to finish this up and, and see where it goes from there. 
Yeah, there's certainly that sentiment. You can feel it when you talk to folks here in New Hampshire. I mean, it's certainly uh, when you look at the, the, the MAGA supporters that were behind Trump from the very beginning, there's a sense now that, you know, a lot of people are pushing, saying, well, why isn't Haley just going to, you know, drop out now? Um, I don't think she will. I don't think, obviously, she won't. I think she wants to hold on strong. I think she wants to try to hold on until she gets to South Carolina. I don't know. A lot of people say that's probably not a good decision. She's probably not going to win. Um, but I think that, you know, this is what a primary is all about. It's about shaking it all out, putting all of the policies out there on the table so that the American people can pick who they want to represent them, and especially right here now in um, New Hampshire when you see that Ron DeSantis uh, has dropped out. He's given his full support to President Trump. Uh, right now, President Trump looks to be ahead by double digits. Uh, this is going to be an extraordinary time in American history. And look, President Trump, for a lot of the people that I've been speaking to out on the street, they are most concerned right now about what they're seeing at the U.S. border. They're very concerned about national security. They're concerned about the economy. They're concerned about their families, about their child's education, about the future direction this nation is taking. Um, I spoke to people who said, hey, look, we're even concerned right now about growing anti-Semitism in the United States and the divide that we've seen. I think the important thing right now, now that we've seen Governor DeSantis step aside, and uh, now it's a two race. You know, it's got you've got Haley, you've got Trump. But I think the biggest thing for anyone right now is going to be unity. It's going to be unifying people, putting pe bringing people together, making people realize, look, we're one nation. We've got to fight for what's important. We've got to stand up for those principles. I think President Trump was doing that, and he was pushing that uh, message of unity. Um, I think that we're going to see more and more of that uh, in the upcoming days. And, and certainly, certainly once this shakes down to just, to the winner, and, and and more than likely everyone's looking at that being President Trump. Exactly. I think there's a lot we could talk about, and I just don't see a, a reason why Nikki Haley would want to go on to, to South Carolina and, and where she's down you right. know, more than double digits there. But let's bring it back to the border real quickly. Um, it, does it bother you that right now we're – seeing one of those famous deals come together in the Senate. Now, I like Senator Lankford. I've known James for a long time. But it just bothers me right now that this is an issue in which Joe Biden has finally figured out, at least his team has, this is a problem. Um, are you concerned about what's going to come out of those negotiations as not being the real things that we need and simply a ploy to put more money to basically prop up a system that is broken? 100%. 100%. We have rules in place. This is a simple solution to the U.S. southern border. It's put out the message and do it with action that the border is not open for business. Uh, we are losing not only American lives, but there are people dying. Uh, right now, the numbers are over 2,300. 2,300 illegal migrants that we know of that have lost their lives attempting to enter the United States illegally. We've got the drug cartels and the human, uh, you know, traffickers making hundreds of billions of dollars off of this horrific, nefarious actions that are that are just targeting our national security, targeting the American public. The people are tired of this, Doug. They're sick and tired of it. There is a way to shut this down, and it's embarrassing that not even the Republicans can resolve this problem. You know, everybody's kicking the can down the road. Oh, we want to keep the government open. We don't want to shut anything down. We feel bad for the Border Patrol because if they don't get their paychecks, Border Patrol is going to get their paychecks. Yep. The federal, they're going to get their paychecks. The problem is nobody wants to resolve this. The problem is, is that both sides are somehow benefiting from this horrific, horrific open borders policy situation that has put everybody's life in danger. And there has to be a moment in time where people are going to stand up and they are going to fight back and they're going to say no more. And those are the elected officials that we need to put in office. Those are the people that are going to do the job, not just talk about it, but actually do it. And I think the American public is, is this is the reason why you're seeing this huge shift again, where the American people are saying no more. We're fed up. We want that border closed down, and they have every right to say it. We're losing too many lives with that border being open.
Well, and, and I think it's amazing the Biden administration is not held accountable for the lives that are lost because it is their policies that have encouraged this. And they can't say that it's not because all you got to do is look back to the to the last year plus of the, of the Trump administration in which those numbers were cut down to, to basically next to nothing. And we were not seeing what we're seeing right now. Um, and, and I think that's the, the problem that we're, we're moving into. But, again, it is amazing to me that as you look at this from an electoral standpoint, uh, Biden really has no way to go on this because, frankly, people are starting to see it not from the just from the human suffering side, but from the drug side. Is that what you're hearing? Maybe a little bit in New Hampshire and Iowa and other places. It's not it, the the human trafficking side is a problem, but the drug side is is a problem as well. Oh, one hundred percent, one hundred percent. This is certainly certainly about the drug side. We have lost so many Americans to fentanyl poisoning. So many of our children have lost their lives to heroin addiction and fentanyl addiction and poisoning. And I want to stress that again. There are many, many people in this country that believe they took a Percocet, that believe they took, a, you know, a pill or that did drugs at a party or young people who were unaware of what was happening to them until it was too late and they lost their lives. This is a proxy war against the United States. This is a proxy war by our adversaries, people. Uh, certainly, China is a major player in this, and people within the Mexican government that are on the take by these cartels, and frankly, people within the United States. And when the Chinese government and our adversaries operate like this against us and we allow it to happen, and it's in yep. particular our government allows it to happen, I would have to say that that, that is a dereliction of duty it of the worst. It is. Sarah, I mean, thanks for everything. Sarah, we got to get, but thank you for everything. We'll see you again in New Hampshire. We'll be back here on Seb Gorka's show just in a few minutes. Did you know that 84% of New Year's resolutions fail in the first six weeks? That's got me thinking about PhD weight loss and nutrition and why it was a success for me. Why I haven't gained one pound of my 42-pound weight loss back. Why Jeff, my producer, decided to start the program. Most people blame their failure on a lack of time, motivation, and a loss of zeal. PhD makes it simple. It doesn't take a lot of extra time. They are masters of motivation. You have a team of coaches by your side the whole time. And you don't lose your zeal because every week you make great strides. So you stay excited. Do something different this year and call PhD Weight Loss and Nutrition. 864-644-1900 to get started or online at myphdweightloss.com. Don't do this alone. The number, 864-644-1900, myphdweightloss.com. You're listening to America First with special guest host, former Congressman Doug Collins. All right, we're here. We're back. Can you believe it? Can that first hour have gone any faster? I mean, I'm telling you, folks, we 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 had John Solomon, we had Sarah Carter. We talked to, uh, to callers. I mean, uh, about lots of things going on. We've got a big uh, hour coming up here. And <coughs> unless I choke myself to death, and then we'll figure that out as we go. Um, Look, we're also, you know, following the, the scenes down in the Georgia race. We have had it confirmed. John Solomon broke that news here at the top of last hour that the uh, divorce proceedings in Nathan Wade's divorce, which involved Fonnie Willis and others, have been unsealed. We'll see how that all plays out here in the next little bit because uh, I think that's going to be an interesting uh, argument as they go forward on the viability of this case. And, and as others have said, you know, the the problems developing out of Georgia will uh, continue into uh, the other cases that are going on as well. But uh, right now, I want to bring uh, to the table and uh, onto the show Ashley Hike. Ashley, right now, is the chief engagement officer for AFPI. She's a good friend of mine. We work together. I started up in helping with AFPI Georgia. And also, anywhere Ashley tells me to go, I also uh, do that as well for them. Um, but she also does America First work. She goes back to a coalition together coalition director for national uh trump pence campaign back in 2020 she's also the mother of five married to a marine um you know there's no marine this marine i'm sure is scared of nothing but her so at this point we've got it all going ash it's so good to see you thanks for being a part of uh, seb gorka's show today thank you for having me i'm excited to join you 
Well, it's good. First off, let's let's talk about elections because that's sort of your wheelhouse. And we at the end of last segment, I was uh, had a caller calling in about you know doing things and Republicans being Republicans, and I get all that. That we were talking about how that actually played out, and then we also talked about coalitions. That's something in your wheelhouse. It's interesting to me that. Donald Trump's base has always been expanding among African-Americans, Asians, Hispanics, others. But you never heard that about Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley or the other candidates. What do you what makes that just special? Yeah, that, that's something that President Trump worked on from day one when he took office. I would say even back in the 2016 campaign, he has a very wide appeal. And I think it's because his policies um, are not traditional conservative policies. And we're beginning to see, too, just such a clear distinction. He is such a marketing genius when it comes to what does America First policies mean. Um, build the wall, drain the swamp, um, and just really talking about the forgotten man and woman. And this to be able to communicate that in a way that is just resonates with the American people is really unique and not something that, you know, a lot of politicians can do. And I think a big reason is because he actually believes it and he cares about it. And he has his family who's doing the exact same thing. Um, When I was the coalition's director, you know, the coalition's department was something that they prioritized and they cared about. And from day one, they showed up and they wanted to invest in communities that were um, historically, you know, underserved and forgotten. One of the things that we can point to were opportunity zones that he made a priority, lifting um, people out of poverty who lived in really impoverished areas, making sure that parents had control of their children's education, which is also a cornerstone of the America First agenda from AFPI, America First Policy Institute. Um, all of these things resonate with just different communities, but also it's how he delivered it. You know, when I was on the Trump Prince campaign in 2020, um, we made sure that we were talking about um, you know, communism and freedom in Miami-Dade with the Cuban population and Hispanic or Hispanic Americans are not monolithic. So what Cubans, you know, the Cuban community agrees with and prioritizes and how you communicate is going to be different than, you know, the Mexican Americans that are predominantly in Phoenix, Arizona, for example. And so making sure you're identifying the right message with the right people in the right way is really important. You could say the same thing for women. Um, a woman who lives in inner city or in a downtown is going to view issues very differently than a suburban mom. And so we have to meet people where they are. And that's something that Donald Trump and his campaign have always done exceptionally well. And, and that's why I'm, I'm glad to be affiliated with AFPI overall, and especially here in Georgia and across the country as we work together on some of this stuff. Because it is, uh, I've always said this, and I say this, Ashley, if you, and you've heard me speak some, and I, I speak all across the country, and I tell people, you know, look, it, most people are genuinely conservative whether they realize it or not. You know, they don't go out and overspend their, their checkbook. They don't they don't go out and, you know, do things that are especially economically, they, they, they tend to care about other people, they tend to care about their communities, they care about their schools that their kids go to. And these are things that we just gotta do a better job communicating on. We've had an interesting conversation. Seb, uh, the Gorka Show has some great folks behind the scenes that put this show on every day, and we've had some great conversations over the past hour. One of those is which is talking about uh, the younger generation at 35 and under is what I'll just talk about it now, and the economic issue. You mentioned empowerment zone, you know, opportunity zones and others. How does a generation that, I, that was rightly pointed out off air that has basically grown up in a bad economy except for the few years of, of Trump – how do we get them to understand that the economy can be better and not what the Democrats have been selling them for most of their adult life? Well, I think we're already starting to see that. And the reason I say that is on social media, we see how um, younger, 35 and under, are saying, well, I thought this was my starter home and I don't see the ability to purchase a or upgrade my home anytime in the near future or even be able to purchase a home at all. So I think as you get older, there are things that happen in your life that are real moments that truly impact you. So for example, um, when you finally get married and you have your children and you're told that if you don't um, raise them a certain way or or the government is going to co-parent with you, as a mom, I think most moms are going to say, no, you aren't. Those are my children. They're common sense policies. And so I think we're seeing, you know, as you're, you know, purchasing, you're going to buy your own groceries or, you know, wanting to make bigger investments or make more money, um, they will be impacted at some point and they're going to come around to it. One thing I, I also was just thinking about as we were talking about this is Donald Trump has a really specific, he's got a brand. And his brand, if you look at the Trump organization, it's really cool. And people want to be a part of that brand. And he spent a lot of his life 
building that brand and it's um, I think very appealing. The other piece of this is um, Donald Trump always says, uh, they're coming after you, I'm just in the way. And you just mm -hmm. talked about you know, the district attorney in uh, Fulton County, Fannie Willis, you look at Alvin Braggs in New York, you look at Jack Smith, then you look at what the Department of Justice has done to the school board moms, you look at what they've done to the, the veterans, to the Catholic churches, um, and you realize, okay, I could be next. I could be next. I don't know if I don't agree with this government, will they come after me as, as a parent, as a Catholic, as a, as a veteran, et cetera. So across the board, I think it, that um, goes beyond any sort of age, age limit as well. I agree. And one of the things we're just finding out, and for some of us who've been watching this, and I was deeply involved in it when I was in Congress, especially the Judiciary Committee, is this continue overreach of Department of Justice into people's lives. And, and now we're finding out that they were watching us if we went to Bass Pro Shops and, uh, you know, buying guns. All I ask is if you're going to watch me, at least give me a 10% discount for watching. I mean, because I'm going to go to Bass Pro Shops. Um, I want to turn to the question just a little bit. When we talk politics here, what we're seeing in New Hampshire, I think, you know, is, is Donald Trump solidifying the base. I think he's going to win by multiple points. I think this race is over there. But I'm going to bring out something from your past because I'm curious about this. I, I was a kid in North Georgia who grew up watching California. I mean, if you think about it, all the shows, it was chips, it was everything. You know, from the 70s, 60s, 70s, 80s. Um, California was this place everybody wants to go. And if you look at the politics of that time, it was very conservative in California, Orange County, Ronald Reagan. We had all of this coming on. You're from Clovis, a little town in uh, California, agricultural. How do you see it as someone a native of California? And I've talked to members of Congress from out there as well. What do you think led to the change in the last 20, 25 mm -hmm. years of California uh, that we don't really see, you know, that, we, that we've seen now turn to that basically liberal bastion? Yeah, I mean, it's really when they got, when the left got control um, of the legislature specifically, everything started to shift dramatically. Um, you had Pete Wilson, who was governor, and then after that was Governor Gray Davis. And if you remember, he had a, I think it was like $15 billion deficit. Keep in mind now it's $70 billion, And he was recalled with that because that deficit, state deficit was so huge, and Arnold Schwarzenegger came up behind him. And in Arnold Schwarzenegger's first term after Gray Davis was recalled, he had all sorts of um, different sort of legislative items. Now, he had a Democrat legislature, so he tried to run ballot initiatives in California, and they failed miserably. The teachers' unions came out full force. The unions own California, bottom line. The teachers' unions, um, the municipal employee unions, there is there is no power to the people. It's all about the elitism, the the and it's not the union workers, don't get me wrong, it's the union leadership that is calling the shots in the state. Um, they own the legislature, the Democrat legislature. Now they have super majorities in both chambers. And then what ended up happening beyond that, um, I remember this specifically, I believe it was in 20, um, 2016 was when they passed automatic mail votes, ballot harvesting, et cetera. In 2018, um, I was running campaigns and we would send people to knock doors with like little lanyards that said, you know, official ballot collector. A Republican is not going to give you the ballot, period. It's not happening. Um, and so we lost. We lost big time. And they went onto the college campuses, and they have complete control. The Secretary of State, you can't clean the voter rolls in California if you don't have a minimal Secretary of State. So it just spirals. Yeah, that's what it is. Hey, Ashley, uh, we're going to be with you. I want to come back to something that's coming up here in Georgia. We've seen it in Alaska. It's called ranked choice voting. If you've not heard of it, you need to hear about it and also some of the things going on. We're going to continue this conversation right after the break with Ashley Hyatt. Stay tuned. Are you tired of not getting a good night's sleep? Well, my friend, Mike Lindell has created the perfect solution. He didn't just stomp out the pillow. He also created the Giza Dream Bed Sheets. Made from the world's best cotton called Giza, these sheets are ultra soft and breathable, yet extremely durable. And now, for a limited time, you can get 50% off the Giza Dream Sheets with prices starting as low as $29.98 in a variety of sizes and colors and have a 60-day money-back guarantee and a 10-year warranty. Go to MyPillow.com and click on the radio square and use promo code G-O-R-K-A at checkout. You can also find deep discounts on all MyPillow products, including the MyPillow 2.0 mattress topper and the MyPillow towel sets. Don't wait any longer to get the best sleep of your life. Call 800 
800-829-8468 or go to mypillow.com now and use promo code Gorka. That's 800-829-8468 or mypillow.com, promo code G-O-R-K-A. You're listening to America First with special guest host, former Congressman Doug Collins. All right, we're back, and we're back with Ashley Hike still with us here. Ashley, I want to take a turn on this, this conversation. We talked in general about the election and where we see Trump. A lot has been made uh, about the last few years about election integrity, election, making sure every vote counts, you know, the whole problems that we had with, you know, people being just sent ballots without requesting them, all this kind of stuff. And we saw a lot of it here in Georgia. There was a lot of issues. Um, and again, not looking backwards. And I think many people get confused when you talk about, oh, you're just trying to go back and relive election. No. Um, I think it's been said, and I think Hogan said it, I think you've said it as well. It's, it's, the question is, is how much of a uh, you know, fraud or how much of an impropriety are you willing to take? And I think that's going to become a bigger and bigger issue. It's a way to frame this uh, as, as we go forward. But one of the things that raised its head a few years ago, and it com- like all liberal things in my mind, it comes in this guise of, oh, we're going to help out and we're going to save money, and it's called ranked choice voting. And most of the country has not heard of this, Ashley. They haven't. Alaska uses it. Maine, Maine uses it some. Georgia, it's been brought up a couple of times down here, and there's a hearing actually tomorrow, folks, in Georgia on uh, banning ranked choice voting. Uh, AFI is going to have a, a person there, and I'm going to be doing some more about it on social media tomorrow. Ashley, number one, explain ranked choice voting, and then let's get into the, what the problems of that are. Well, they try to say that ranked choice voting, it's its really an overly complicated system. It's not popular amongst the majority of Americans. And basically what ends up happening is you rank your votes. But if you only vote for one person, a lot of cases, um, so you, you rank your, your vote and then they you have to vote again and they only take the top number of people. But if you only vote for one person, they'll throw out the ballots. So you're actually not listening to the vote, the voice of the people and it's a strategy predominantly uh, championed by the left uh, because Democrats have found it to be successful for themselves because you're not actually representing the people's voice. When we talk about election integrity, when we talk about places like Georgia or Ohio that have take, gone through great measures to ensure that the elections are secure, to make sure that every person has a voice, when you have a system like great choice voting, where you're not really giving one vote, one person, or one candidate, um, you're confusing voters, and it creates all sorts of additional election integrity issues that really shouldn't exist to begin with. I understand. And, and well, one of the things here is Alaska was one of the first that we actually became known a, a little bit more. And just this past week, uh, the legislature in Alaska uh, voted in the House to do away with it out of committee, a five to two vote out of the committee up there. Um, but, okay, I'm going to go back to, and I'm going to play the other side here because I, I don't agree with ranked choice voting at all. I think, you know, we need to get in, you need to vote, and you need to count them properly. Um, but they say, well, it, it saves money, and you don't have to go back and do runoffs. I'm from a runoff state in Georgia. Could we? There's other ways to deal with runoff than a ranked choice voting that actually confuses the voter, and actually what we've seen is, is frankly, move more toward a liberal voting base that can't beat a conservative up, up front. That's exactly right. And that's actually what has been discussed in places like Utah. Um, Utah is trying, I think some of the conservatives are frustrated in Utah because they believe that they are getting candidates like Mitt Romney, for example, um, because of normal elections. So they're saying, well, if we had a ranked choice voting system um, in Utah, then we would be able to have more conservative. But actually just the opposite is true. You're diluting your vote. You need to make sure that your conservatives, that whatever voting block you represent, that you're educating your voters, you're mobilizing the vote, and you have them take action. It's it's really quite simple, to be honest, but I think people um, start panicking because they feel like they're losing power. I think the Democrats panic, thinking they're going to lose power, and this is another card up their sleeve to cheat the system, and that's why they've issued so many bills across the country. You know, Ohio in March is going to have a referendum, a ballot initiative on race-based voting as well. That's a state that has been very, very red, um, and I think that they realize that there may not be a path for them to regain control. So this is something that they feel that they can maybe um, dilute the conservative voice and potentially, you know, pick up some ground in Ohio, which is really a shame. Well, it is. Actually, also, before we get going to uh, we leave this topic, though, I want to explain in just basic terms ranked choice voting in the sense that, you know, 
basically, uh, some people may be listening to it now, and they're saying, well, so like the person who comes in first didn't come in first anymore? You have to count everybody's vote? Isn't it a, it's, it's a threshold process that you get to a certain threshold underneath 50% in some cases, then they go to this. Is that is that the way people need to understand yeah. this? Yeah, and so basically you vote for multiple candidates and you rank them in order. And so who is your first choice candidate? Who is your second choice candidate? Who is your third choice candidate? And then based upon, and so on. And then ranked choice voting advocates, um, they say it'll prevent like a polarized election campaign because you're voting for more than person. However, it really does complicate the system um, and the other thing is there have been multiple cases where if people do not vote for more than one, so they only rank one person, they will throw out those ballots. So there have been places, I believe it was in Maine, where they threw out over 10,000 ballots um, because the voter did not rank their actual votes. So, and then each round they eliminate, they could potentially eliminate. Um, you see this obviously um, up in Alaska, um, and that was a very close, close race, but it really dilutes the voice of the people when you start doing things on this point system basically so so really what we've just found out here is that if you only voted for one person which is what most of the people uh do they've they've grown up doing that um is they vote for one person but then they say well you know i don't like these other candidates i'm not going to rank them they in essence lose their vote if that if the candidate they want gets under 50 percent yeah so a couple examples i'm looking at a letter that we're signing on to here um, in Maine in 2018, one of the candidates had 46% of the vote on the initial ballot. Ahead of his challengers, 45%. No one received above 50%. So the Secretary of State decided to just throw out 8,200 ballots, and therefore the Democrat won the congressional seat. In Alaska in a 2022 special election, 60% of Alaskans wanted a Republican. Um, 11,000 ballots were trashed because voters only voted for the other Republican. The Democrat won by slightly more than 5,000 votes. So because there was not consensus, they threw they threw out those votes. Um, it's really, it's not a coincidence that the people who are supporting this are the ones that don't actually believe in the safe and secure elections that we really deserve in our country. And I, I just want to make one more, one more point. I don't care if you're a if you're a Democrat or Republican or Independent or a Green Party. You know, you served Doug. My husband served um, and served. Like we fight for freedom so that everybody can have a voice and everybody should feel like their vote counts. And when you have a system that's convoluted and confusing and your vote, you feel like your vote doesn't count, that's not the way our system is supposed to work, and it's not right. And, and I think that's the key that in looking at all of this, Ashley, is, is we've got to look at this. So, look, I'm, I'm putting the word out here on this show today, on Seb's show today on America First, that this is something to be watched. It may not be in your state now, but I, I'll go back to that main election that you referenced. That was Bruce Poliquin, um, mm -hmm. a friend of mine uh, up there who was in Congress. He worked hard as every anybody to get into congress and then had it basically taken from him uh, although it's like one of those things he won on election day and lost after election day and i think that's a, a an interesting concept that most people are not familiar with uh real quickly before you go though i mean we've, we've had a lot of guests on we got fred coming up later but um what afpi real quickly your 30 second uh, sort of elevator speech afpi i know in georgia they can find us but where can they find uh out more about afpi AmericaFirstPolicy.com or at A1Policy, AmericaFirstWorks.com, at AmericaFirstWorks. That is great, Ashley. You're wonderful. Thanks for being a part of the show today. Uh, we'll talk with you soon. Folks, if you're out there and you want to join the conversation, 833-334-6752. we got a whole 30 minutes. Let's talk, America. Doug Collins filling in for Seb Gorka. We'll see you back in just a minute. You're listening to America First with special guest host, former Congressman Doug Collins. We will rock you. For those who are not hearing the music, that's what we're playing right now. We will rock you, and that's exactly what we're getting ready for. 2024, we're going to rock you uh, in the ballot box. Get out and actually do what we need to be doing. Donald Trump uh, on his way to defeating Joe Biden, going back into the 47th president of the United States. Um, but we've got to start in the, in the grassroots, and we've got to start with our fighters. Uh, the gentleman joining me now, I got to know him when he first came to Congress. I had the privilege of getting him on my committee, on Judiciary Committee. Guy Reston Thaler has shot up like a rocket. 
uh, into leadership. He's uh, just an, a great guy. He's working in our whip, deputy whip office, um, and it's just glad to have him with us. So, Guy, welcome to the Seb Gorka Show. Uh, it's glad to be with you. Doug, thanks for having me on. I always enjoy it. It's good stuff. Hey, let's just dive right in. Congress right now, I mean, from every angle, is just people are getting frustrated. Not only the folks who are serving in it, people who are outside watching it happen. Um, Isn't it true that at a certain point in time that I know from a perspective you're in, it's not about becoming less conservative. It's about finding out what you can pass and actually move the ball forward. And has that seemingly become the problem in Washington right now? The, the problem we have is we have a lot of people that are so focused on being purists that they don't want to negotiate. And we have to remember, and there's nothing wrong with being, with being pure. You should never betray your values, but you also have to deal with the, the way things are. You've got to be pragmatic and realistic. We control one-third of government, actually not even one-third, one-sixth, because you've got to get Biden to sign it, uh, whatever bill you pass, and you've got to get the Senate to pass it, which is controlled by Democrats. So when you look at that, uh, we control very little. The issue we're having is when we can't get legislation moved and there's must-pass pieces of bills, Think like the spending bills have to get done. What you have to do is you have to, get, you have to get bipartisan support, and if you can't carry it in the House with all Republicans, the cost of the Senate puts on that to get Democratic support to get it done goes up really high on the term of, on, on the term of liberal or conservative. So what we should be doing is we should be sticking together as conservatives in getting the most Republican, most conservative product out of the House by 218 Republicans voting together, if not more, and then sending that product to the Senate, waiting for the Senate to volley a bill back, and then negotiating from there. If we have to negotiate with a product that's already been negotiated with Republicans and Democrats in the House, then we've already started at the center left, and that bill is going to get even further to the left when it comes back from the Senate. Yeah, and that, and that is a problem. And, and remember, folks out there, I've told you this before. Some of you agree with me. Some of you don't, and that's fine. You have every right in the world to be wrong. Um, if you're not putting anything forward, you have less of a chance of getting anything you want. And Democrats have known this for a long time and going uh, forward in this. But one of the things, too, I'm going to dispel a couple of myths here just to, as we go forward, is a reminder that in a shutdown, it is the administration that actually def- defines what spending happens during a shutdown. And and that takes it away from Congress. So this idea that a shutdown is the easiest way to get what you want isn't exactly true, is it, Guy? No. In fact, no one ever wins a shutdown. If you go back, you know, we shut down. I wasn't in Congress at the time, but we shut down over Obamacare. Well, guess what? We still have Obamacare. We shut down over the border crisis. Guess what? We still have a border crisis. So this notion that we're going to shut down and then magically we're going to get border security, it's just a false notion. And when you allow the Biden administration to decide what stays open, what doesn't, guess what's not going to stay? Guess who's not going to be showing up for work and not getting paid? The Border Patrol agents. So if you go into a shutdown, you're actually going to make the border crisis worse because the Biden administration will just say, OK, now it's truly an open border. Come on. Come on over. We'll, we'll deal with it. And they'll, they'll welcome that because then they can turn to the Republicans and say, see all this chaos of the southern border. It's not us. It's the Republicans because they won't negotiate with us. So then we end up owning the border. Um, It's a huge strategic blunder to shut down. Well, and also we got to also face the fact before we move on to something else is the fact that that you don't save any money. Also, even if you got some of the stuff you want, you don't save any money because every time the government reopens, you pay, you do back pay, even if it went past a payday uh, and going into that. Let's turn to Pennsylvania, your home state. A lot going on. It's going to be a key election year. Uh, Right now, if the election was today, the Democrats have to keep every Senate seat and win the presidency to maintain control of the Senate. One of the big races is going to come up is in your state. You've got the McCormick-Casey uh, race, and you've got a few uh, House races that are going to be pivotal in a one-seat majority right now currently in the House. Talk to us about how the election is looking in Pennsylvania. Well, from, from top down, you have Trump that's right now leading in the polls. Uh, he's up by like two or three against Biden statewide, and I think that margin is actually going to increase for Trump because – Remember, Trump does really well um, with with black male voters in particular, but also working uh, working Americans, the blue collar voter, which is going to make up a lot of share in areas like Philadelphia and where I'm from, Western Pennsylvania. So I think that trend is going to go uh, go in President Trump's way. Now, at the Senate, we have a really good candidate in Dave McCormick. Uh, 
win or lose, the Republican Party wins just by Dave being on the ticket because I think there's a good shot that Dave McCormick wins. I think he actually will win. But even if he doesn't, we're going to force the Democrats to spend so much money in the very expensive uh, media markets of Philadelphia and Pittsburgh that we're going to drain them of resources, which will make it easier for us to win in Ohio and Montana. And again, I I think McCormick is going to win, but even if he doesn't, the conservative movement still wins by having him on the ticket. And then lastly, with the House races, there's three pickup opportunities for us in in the House statewide. And that doesn't – that might not sound like a lot, Doug, but when we have one more retirement at the end of this month, we're going to go back and we're going to have a one-seat majority. Three additional seats from Pennsylvania can make all the difference in passing conservative legislation in the next Congress. So uh, Pennsylvania, we call it, you know, it's a keystone state. It's certainly going to be the keystone state in the 2024 election. Uh, we've got a couple more minutes left here, Guy. One of the things that I don't think is brought up enough, and I know it got sort of punted at the end of the year, and I was frankly I was disappointed in this. Uh, you uh, on the Judiciary Committee with me, I know the now Speaker Mike Johnson was on the Judiciary Committee when we were fighting this battle about three years ago on FISA. And the realization that the Department of Justice has abused FISA in many ways, it's not where it needs to be. There's the things that we need. We need FISA, but we don't need it in its current form and condition. Uh, we punted it basically till April, I believe it is. Where is it right now? Um, you know, I came up in the Judiciary Committee product. Looks like what Jim Jordan has brought forward again this year, which I'd worked on before, along with Devin Nunez and others. Uh, is there a hope that this year we can actually tighten the reins a little bit on FISA? This should be a bipartisan issue, by the way. Well, it should be. And actually, the way it shaped out a Judiciary Committee, that the Judiciary Committee product was actually very bipartisan. I mean, you had Zoe Lofgren, and one of our Democratic colleagues, yep. actually whipping her side to vote for it. Um, and, and it's because they, th- there's a wing of the Democratic Party that's very skeptical of all this power being held by the federal government, just like we have a libertarian streak in our party. So it's, it, so it's interesting they come together. But where, where is this legislation? We had a product that came out of the House, House Intel Committee, uh, and, and then we had a competing FISA reform bill that came out of judiciary. I'm much more partial to judiciary. I think it has the reforms that are necessary. Other people think that that the House Intel Committee uh, product is needed to to actually keep us safe. Uh, The truth may be somewhere in between, but we need to select the best parts of each one of those bills and then put that on the floor in April and pass that product. What we can't do is what we tried to do a few weeks ago where we were thinking about putting both bills on the floor – and having what's called a queen of the hill scenario where whatever bill gets the most votes gets sent over to the Senate. I don't like giving up our destiny. I I think that we (laughs) should work on this legislation, get the reforms that we need, make sure that we hold unelected career bureaucrats accountable, especially when they're doing things like spying on members of Congress and, uh, and leading, uh, leading, uh, uh, candidates in the primary, such as Donald Trump. Remember they spied on Trump. So we got to have the reforms necessary. We also need to make sure they, they have a warrant. You know, I, I hate this thing where they say, well, we, we don't have time to get a warrant. I, I was a prosecutor in Iraq. I mean, we were in literally a war zone, and we had the ability to go to the court and get a warrant for what we needed to do. The yeah. fact that you say that you don't have the ability to get a warrant for these uh, situations, if it's not an exigent, exigent circumstance, you should have to go get a warrant. So that's where we are with the FISA reauthorization. Yeah, I want more people to actually pay attention to that and not just the folks who are just sort of the junkies who, who sort of watch this or, or frankly, those that believe every you know, con, you know, thing about the government is bad. There's things about the government, especially in FISA, that we need for our protection, but it doesn't need to be abused. Um, real quickly, do you, a lot of rumors about the next spending bills. Some concern, and and you know don't have to elaborate as much here, but I know it's still a lot left to go. We're still a month and a half away. You don't even have the top line 302B numbers for the individual spending items yet. At least it's not been reported. Um, is there a possibility that they that that somehow you can't get this done, and you just CR basically till the end uh, till September 30th and try this thing again? There, there's a yeah, there's a large probability that that's what happens. That would be an absolute shame. Yep. Because when we go into a continuing resolution, we take the last year's spending. Well, last year's spending was done by Nancy Pelosi. And so it, I'm not so – in a way, I'm not so concerned about the top-line number because as long as we're funding things that are important to conservatives, I'm willing to have a higher number if we are actually yep. funding our priorities and defunding their priorities. But you're right. We're not even at the 302. So we have a top-line number. 
But, but you don't have the bees, yeah. Which are the 302Bs, and those haven't been to Shady yet. Those are amazing monster bills, you know, Doug. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. Got, got to get. Thank you so much for being a part. We'll look forward to talking to you again, my friend. Thanks for everything. We'll be back here after the break. Uh, here, Doug Collins filling in for Seb Gorka. You're listening to America First with special guest host, former Congressman Doug Collins. All right, we're back. And, yes, we are a smooth operator, smooth criminal, however you want to do it. Good stuff coming out of the box today, guys. I'd have to tell you, folks, if y'all don't ever see them, you don't get to talk to them that much. You don't even do it, but they are the ones behind the show. They're the organization behind the Seb Gork, America First Radio Broadcast, the producers and folks are great. They are wonderful and killing it on the bumper music today, by the way. Uh, now we got Fred Flights coming in, Americans from AFPI, also with Center for American Security. He's the vice chair of that. Fred, it's good to see you. You and I are typically on shows together, and now we get to talk to each other. So uh, welcome aboard. I know. This is great. Thanks, Doug. I love it. Hey, breaking news. Breaking news. Uh, we got the Biden administration seems to maybe for the first time have – in a while have done something about the Houthi rebels, Houthi rebels in Yemen. Tell us about it. Well, I believe at about 4.30 uh, Eastern time today, U.S. And, and British forces conducted an eighth airstrike. This is the eighth airstrike against Yemen in 10 days. Uh, they hit about 30 sites targeting about 150 weapons. Supposedly some leadership sites were hit. And uh, this is because the prior seven airstrikes did not stop the Houthis from continuing to fire missiles. And, you know, the Houthis are an exceptionally dangerous terrorist group. They have anti-ship cruise missiles. They have ballistic missiles and drones with a range of 1,000 miles. The Wall Street Journal has said that may make them the world's most dangerous terrorist group. Now, this this strike was long overdue, but i got to tell you, if we have to strike an enemy eight times, there's something wrong. We obviously didn't establish deterrence by the, the previous attacks. But attacking at all is a failure of deterrence and diplomacy. But I don't know if you, if you read, and this is really scandalous. I've written about this in, in, in uh, uh, Newsmax. For the first strike, which was supposed to be a massive strike, a massive show of force, we told the Houthis before we attacked, so they could evacuate their buildings. <laughs> now, now, they did this for humanitarian reasons. The journal said, well, this will be interpreted as a sign of weakness by the Houthis and people in the region. But it also was a weapon, an opportunity for the Houthis to remove the weapons before we bombed them. So surprise, surprise, yeah. that massive strike made no difference. The Houthis kept firing away. So now we had to do this massive strike. And it's a tragedy that... Yemen's a dirt-poor country. Yemenis are dying because they're acting as a, a proxy of the Iranians and because we're not dealing with the Houthi rebels seriously. So that led to this eighth strike. It, it really is a tragedy. Well, and I think this is uh, something to, to really focus on. Let's, let's, dig, let's dig a little deeper here. We've got a few minutes. Uh, I want to dig in on this issue of the Houthis and the fact that Yemen is a desolate country. I mean, it is just a – it is – poor, it's poverty in Paris, and yet you have, as you just said, one of the most uh, prolific terror groups in the world. Why? Because of Iran. Bottom line, Iran. Not, I mean, and also, I think if in a war situation in which they are firing at us, it is incumbent upon us to make sure that they don't have people to fire them. At least the same sort of trigger finger is not pulling the weapon again. And that would then begin to understand that, hey, there is a deterrent here. I don't want to end up like the first one who just fired the weapon. Two-part question. When, hopefully, there's going to be some consequences to people wake up and see that if you want to be in a war, that means that you're probably going to die against one, two of the bigger superpowers in the world, the superpower of the U.S. and Britain. And then number two, the Iranian appeasement that has come out of this administration is not being addressed. How is that going to affect this, Fred? Those are really good questions. Now, now the, 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 the Iranians gave these weapons uh, to the Houthis to meddle in the civil war in Yemen. And these weapons, you know, Yemen's not a thousand miles long. These weapons way exceeded 
what the Houthis needed for this war. These weapons were to attack Saudi Arabia. They have fired these weapons across the Saudi Peninsula at targets on the Persian Gulf. They've attacked the United Arab Emirates. They have attacked Israel. They've fired missiles at Israel. Now, they didn't hit anything, but they got they fell short of the target. The fact that this primitive terrorist group has these sophisticated weapons is outrageous. Iran is behind this. It's directing it. And I might add that in mid-November, while Congress was furious about the possible role of Iran in the Hamas terrorist attack, the Biden administration gave Iran a $10 billion sanctions waiver. I mean, this is, again, this is not deterrence. This is not convincing our enemies to stop destabilizing the region. And if we're talking about retaliation, we saw it over the weekend when Iran fired missiles at a U.S. base, which hasn't yeah. happened. Well, well, actually, it may have happened uh, earlier in the week, but it definitely happened recently. And I'm yeah. just thinking, what's going to stop that? Well, it's not, and, and, and I think this is the thing that I want to discuss. We're going to dig into it here in a minute. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back with Fred. We're going to dig in a little bit further. This Iran issue, Pakistan issue, and just what's going on in this region. This is why you come to us, Seb Gorka Show, America First Radio. We're here. Doug Collins filling in. We'll be right back. Listening to America First with special guest host, former Congressman Doug Collins. All right. For all of you who are listening on the uh, not Rumble stage, if you're listening on Trust Radio, you're hearing it. Yes, War Pigs, Black Sabbath. Uh, sort of fitting for this discussion we're having right now. And for those of you on Rumble, just go put it on after the show, after you get here, the rest. But we're going to pick back up with Fred Flies. Fred, um, let's take this a step further. And not just, you know, the discussion of Iran and them getting $10 billion. Iran is really an oddity, and I mean that not in the sense of being strange, but Iran in many ways stands by itself, not only in the world, but the Middle East as well, with the mullahs and others um, and the funding of terrorist groups. There are many Arab countries in that, Muslim countries in that area, that do not get along at all with Iran. Pakistan, just in this past uh, week or so, actually had an aerial attack into Iran. And for, for those who follow this at a very loose level, that might seem odd. Explain that situation and how uh, Pakistan involved there. Well, about a week ago, Iran fired missiles into Pakistan, Syria, and Iraq. They fired missiles into Syria to attack ISIS, and this is in retaliation for uh, the bombings during the Soleimani Memorial earlier in January. And in, in Iraq, it attacked a supposed Israeli spy base, and it probably targeted the U.S. consulate in Erbil and U.S. forces near the Erbil air, uh, air base. And at the same time, it fired missiles into Pakistan at a uh, and a Sunni terrorist group that's at war with the Iranian regime. Well, the Pakistanis were furious. They recalled their ambassador, and they retaliated by firing at a Pakistani separatist group that's taken refuge in Iran. And it's very unusual for nations to fire missiles into Iran. I don't think it's happened since the Iran-Iraq War of the 1980s, and, and Pakistan was laying a marker down saying, you can't violate our sovereignty like this. If you do, we will attack you. I think... I think the Iranians made a mistake picking a fight with Pakistan. It has a more capable military. It has a, a large missile force, and it has nuclear weapons. Exactly. So I, I think this was Pakistan, I think, trying to say, don't mess with us. And I believe both states have agreed uh, to de-escalate and to stop firing missiles into the other. But you know, this goes back to the very point, Fred. That is what brute force diplomacy looks like. If you pick on us, we're right. going to pick on back to you, and we're going to do it quickly. We're not going to wait for 130 bases or 130 military installations of American forces to be attacked before we start doing anything. That, that's a great point. You know, the, the Houthis were attacking shipping uh, in the Red Sea in Israel from mid-October, and we didn't re retaliate until early January. We talked about it. We gave them all yeah. kinds of vital threats, and they laughed at us. They thought it was a joke. Pakistan immediately responded. That's called deterrence. Yeah, I mean, it's do it immediately, get it over with, and say, okay, if you want to come on, jump. You know, if you're feeling froggy, time to jump. 
And no, they're not about to jump at Pakistan. Pakistan is is in a state of war at most times, mainly with its other side partner, India. But that's a whole different issue. Um, one of the things I'm concerned about, Fred, and we look at this overall, is the and again, it goes back to these Iranian-backed militia groups, two of which Hamas is being decimated in Gaza right now. But also you still have the better, if you would, of the terrorist groups, if you put it in that way, as far as well-trained, well-funded, and well-organized, and that's the uh, Hezbollah in southern Lebanon. And that has been inching up over the last few weeks as well. And you're also hearing reports of Israel bringing uh, some of its more seasoned troops out of Gaza, moving them up north. How much should it worry the world right now of another front breaking out with Hezbollah to the north? Hezbollah is a very capable Iranian-backed terrorist group with a large missile and rocket arsenal, much larger than Hamas. But so far, it's limited its its violence to mostly cross-border rocket attacks. They've been increasing. They have forced Israelis to evacuate areas in northern Israel. And Israel's been responding with retaliatory airstrikes, including airstrikes that have killed Hamas and Hezbollah leaders over the last few weeks. And I believe Iran and Hamas are frustrated with Hezbollah because they will not escalate up to an all-out war with Israel. And there's a reason for that. Hezbollah remembers what happened in 2006 when they did that, when basically Israel cleaned Hezbollah's clock. I was on the House Intel Committee staff in 2006, and I went there in a congressional delegation. I saw the devastation in Beirut, the, the, the bridges that Israel destroyed. It was devastating. For, for Hezbollah, it is both a terrorist group and it's a political party. And it's, in, it's having political problems right now. It does not have control of parliament. So going to war with Israel will have a political price for Hezbollah. So they're a real problem. But I think that factor may keep them from entering a full-fledged war. Not that what they're doing isn't destabilizing, but I don't think they're going to cross that line. Well, it is interesting, though, Fred. You remember at the, the beginning of this, they said they would escalate in proportion to what was happening in Gaza. Well, Gaza has basically been leveled, okay? Um I, I'm not. I can understand the frustration if I was Hamas in thinking I had an ally to the north and that was going to keep Israel occupied, and they've not really moved. That's good for the world, but I think it does show the how much you know sort of love money can buy. I mean, they're certainly being egged on by Hamas and Iran to attack, and I mean, my guess is that the Iranians and Hamas leaders are frustrated because there's a limit so far as to how far Hezbollah will go. What, they, what they're doing is bad, and it's doing damage to northern Israel, and it's raising the possibility of escalating into a full-fledged war. Uh, but, but, but so far, there seems to be a limit. And, uh, you know, whether there'll be an off-ramp for the war in, in, in Gaza, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm hoping it will scale down by, by mid-2024. It's not going to scale down for the election calendar for Joe Biden, which is what Joe Biden would like. Israel will stop fighting when it thinks it has taken care of its security interests. Very quick, uh, we got only got less than a minute here left, Fred. But I want to go. I want to switch because there's going to be a funding battle in Congress over the next few weeks on not only Israel but also the Ukraine, uh, the roar with Russia. Um, without the funding coming from America and other places, where real quickly, how do you see the next six to eight months in the Russia-Ukraine war as the spring thaw occurs, in particular? I think it's going to be a stalemate with or without uh, uh, U.S. Uh, additional weapons. I think okay. Ukraine could lose some ground. But Congress is getting tired of this war, and right. they're looking for an off-ramp. They're looking for peace talks. And I think the Biden administration is actually uh, beginning to consider that. It could be. Fred, always a great pleasure to talk with you. Fred Flight's with us today. Thanks, Fred. Go ahead and now go get your supper. I'm on the way as well. Uh, folks, we're back uh, in just a minute. Last segment. Can you believe how fast this three hours has flown? Doug Collins filling in for Seb Gorka. We'll be right back to put this plane on the ground.